We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. The stories of ancient Rome have been told many times, countless ways by a fair few historians. But in his new book, Palatine, an alternative history of the Caesars, former editor of the Times, Peter Stothard, presents a fresh perspective. The author and journalist shifts the focus to the individuals surrounding pivotal figures as Caesar, Caligula, Tiberius and Claudius in a book that looks at how the concept of an entourage was just as present in ancient times as it is today. Stothard is joined in conversation by Daisy Dunn, the leading classicist, whose books include Of Gods and Men, A Hundred Stories from Ancient Greece and Rome. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com membership or by hitting the subscribe button in your Apple Podcasts app. Now let's join our host, Daisy Dunn, with more. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event. Peter Stoddard is a former editor of both The Times and The Times Literary Supplement, and holder of the President's Medal of the British Academy for Services to the Humanities, to name just a few of his many accolades. Peter is also a prolific author and classicist, a journalist and a critic. His books include On the Spartacus Road, Alexandria, The Last Nights of Cleopatra and The Last Assassin, The Hunt for the Killers of Julius Caesar. But today we'll be discussing his most recent book, Palatine, An Alternative History of the Caesars. This is a book about how power really functioned in Rome, what went on in emperor's bedchambers, and what it was really like to be in an emperor's service. So there's plenty to look forward to. And without further ado, uh, I'd love to introduce Peter and begin our conversation. So Peter, uh, in your book, you offer a reprieve from the sort of usual top-down accounts of Rome and its emperors. And you give us instead, in your own words, history of the big rooms seen from the small, of the top table told from the lower tables. 
And I thought, seeing as it's very almost dinner time, um, we might as well start at that top table. Uh, Horace, the great poet, he famously said that Roman dinners run from sort of from apples from eggs to apples. Um, but to me, that's always sounded rather sort of simple fare, especially for the sort of people you cover in your book, uh, sort of namely emperors. And I wondered, could you possibly give us sort of some idea of what the emperors of Rome were really into eating in the first century? They always wanted to um, seem to be eating the eggs and apples, uh, particularly Augustus and, uh, and, and Tiberius, the early ones. It was considered a very important connection with the people that you would, would eat simple food because they knew, uh, the clever emperors, that actually a lot of their um, people who they ruled were often very hungry. Um, and in fact, you know, the understanding of the way of, of food and power in the ancient world, and in fact, right up to quite you know recent modernity, is very important because if people are risking every day, don't quite know, um, you know whether whether their stomachs going to be full or not, they become really very different people. And particularly when people started living in cities, and Rome was one of the first big cities, um, a Roman emperor knew that um, keeping people fed was his prime, absolutely his prime aim, and so. The, the idea, of, so when Horace, who was who often you can be could be relied upon to say what the Emperor Augustus thought was the right thing, was the right thing, and um, when he talked about these simple food, that was exactly what the, the emperors wanted people to think. And Tiberius had his little cucumbers, and he, his luxury was sort of moving his sort of greenhouse around so it always catch, caught the sun not the sort of fantastic banquets that we could have known they were, that they were actually having. So there was a lot of deceit um, uh, uh, about food from the start, but it's based on the very important thing that, that people were hungry and that the charge that later became of being a glutton, say, and this, this book is a lot about gluttony and the charge of gluttony, was a very convenient thing to a, a critique of someone. Um, but, you know, you also remember that, the, you know, if... You, People who've never been hungry should be cautious of uh, criticising people for being gluttons. I mean, in terms of, you, you sort of say, I mean, obviously you've got Tiberius interested in his little cucumbers, um, Augustus and his figs. They all seem to have sort of a, a favourite kind of almost a, a common food that they, they like. But then you also find sitting alongside that things like the famous ancient cookbook of Apicius, which has some really very exotic recipes, things like flamingo and peacock. Um, and uh, you know, I think back to sort of the letters of Pliny the Younger as well. He sort of chastises his friends for tucking into oysters and sort of womb of sal. I mean, do you think there was a real sort of culture in Rome of of trying to sort of emphasise this more sort of rustic eating while all this much more luxuriant feasting was was going on? Was there a sort of a real contrast between the two? Oh yes, the um, oysters is a good case in point. Of course, oysters where that where they found. Are poor people's food. In fact, you know, Britain, ancient Britons, if you like, pretty much lived on oysters, and we could see that in the, the archaeological record very clearly. By the time a British oyster had been carried in salt water in a barrel with people running, you know, to get it around as quickly as possible, by the time it got to Rome or another big city, it became a kind of a, a, a luxury item. And the Romans saw food rather like that. They, they um, eating became a, a kind of imperial statement in itself. So eating British oysters was their way of telling people in Rome that you conquered Britain. And, and you know, eating stuff, eating 
bits of giraffe from southern, you know, south of the Sahara was a way of of suggesting that well, you hadn't exactly conquered um, anything much south of the Sahara yet, but you were going to. The Romans were very good at this. They would have parrots, you know, on you know, on their tables, and, and I know it's probably disgusting, but, but or, or even just having one singing. But that showed that India was in the Roman domain, and and so f luxury food was was an imperial statement at an imperial banquet. It showed that you, it could be done, that you could get food from all over the world because you owned the whole world. And, and it was this was part of theatrical conceit. But of course, once the conceit took hold, it became kind of one-upmanship and everybody was doing it. And so everybody had to have these luxur um, luxurious food at their banquets or they weren't really playing. But the... No, but the the origin of it was absolutely is is I'm going to do this because I can, which is such an important part of the sort of imperial kind of mindset. You know, I, I can do this. You can't do this. I can do this. And therefore, we are going to have giraffe, or we are going to have oysters from Colchester, even if you don't know where Colchester is. And so you know, the, the the power and the and the food was absolutely kind of linked from linked from the start. But of course, at the beginning. Um, it was much more open. So, you know, if, if you sit down to dinner and you have two different bottles of wine on your table, um, then the first person who did that at any scale was Julius Caesar. I mean, he, he got a huge amount of, of, of kudos for giving an enormous banquet in the streets uh, only a couple of years before he was assassinated, um, at which there was more than one bottle of kind of wine on each table. And people thought that was, a, you know, an extraordinary thing. And again, you know, he, he Julius Caesar was able to do that and spend all that money because he'd taken a lot of money from the Gauls. I think, ironically, I don't think any, much of the wine would have been French, but the money, the money, <laughs> the money that paid for it <laughs> certainly, certainly was. So yes, it was. Uh, um, but then once the uh, once Julius Caesar was gone, and the uh, the whole system of Roman rule changed. One of the ways it changed was to sort of go indoors. So um, what that used to happen on the street, including oratory, politics, fighting, all, all the things that you know, made the Roman Republic go round, um, disappeared or, or from the point of view of the, of the people because they all went inside one house. My book is called Palatine because Palatine is where all the power ended up. It was a house. It was, a, it was the origin of the word palace. And it was the sort of beginning of every palace, every court and palace that ever ever came came after. But once you once you moved inside, the world was a very different place because you needed totally different powers and different skills to operate in effectively in a domestic environment, a powerful domestic environment, than you did on the forum, you know, or on the streets of Rome. And, and that was a, that was where the big shift came. Food was part of it. Um, Flattery, which is a lot of the book, is also part of it. The, a, a lot of the, the rules changed, and, and that's that's the essence of. Uh, and, and they left us with a, a lot of legacies for today, that um, we sometimes don't like to think about. And I think, I mean, that's an interesting point. I think as classicists, we often read that we're talking about sort of going inside and the importance of sort of moving into the Palatine itself. And we often read that for, for the elite people in particular 
eating and dining was very much something that was done at each other's homes. It was mainly you sort of found these sort of fast food bars, as people have called them in Pompeii, this sort of eating out was much more something that the poorer people did. So the idea of sort of food and domesticity and having sort of conversations in the home seemed to have gone sort of a lot more sort of hand in hand uh, within that setting. I mean, as you say in your book, you write that uh, gluttony was a definition that extended beyond the table. It was a character flaw, a permanent part of a man. I wondered whether perhaps sort of within that context, we could explore some of the other areas uh, that contributed to these flaws. I mean, what sort of other luxuries could people enjoy inside within this period? They were luxuries. I mean, the, the luxuries of food um, were certainly important. But as everybody, I think, ever knows who's ever you know, been in a place where you can have a lot of luxurious food, it does actually wear off. You know, the, the, the novelty of it does wear off pretty quickly. And um, Seneca, uh, you know, eventually in, in the age of, uh, of Claudius and Nero, particularly Nero, you know, was just begging to be allowed out, you know, to, to go to a fast food restaurant or go to no <laughs> restaurant whatsoever, uh, rather than have another, another of these banquets. And so the banquets became an oppressive way of, um, of power being exerted f- f- from the top, because just as, as we're sort of vaguely familiar with that still, is that the notion of how you behave at the table you know, what you eat first, you know, what you eat with, how you eat, who you eat with, are, are important power tools in, in, you know, not just in monarchies, but in ordinary, you know, in ordinary life. And, uh, and, and they had, uh, and, and, and the origins of that came particularly in, in, in the shift from sort of outdoor politics, you know, where, where the, the, the light was a, a bit of a disinfectant, although it failed to disinfect in the end. Uh, to an in, to inside where there was no was very little light, hardly anybody could see what was going on. There's enormous opportunities for for rumor and gossip and talk about what was actually going um, going going on. So you could you could spread stories about people, and and, and so to, to an extraordinary extent that hadn't been done before. So for instance, for in a way, moving inside the Palatine was very good for the power of women. Because women had very little public power um, under the Republic. I mean, there were one or two exceptions, but in, in general, there wasn't a great deal of oratory or fighting or money making done by by women. Once they went inside, um, it became like a house, and, and you know, women are very influential within houses, and and so they became very influential within the big house. That was perhaps on the upside for women's equality and women's rights. On the downside, of course, it became fantastically easy to make up extremely scurrilous and uh, unpleasant and sexist stories about women because because you know, you know hardly anybody knew what the truth actually was. So you could make up what you liked. And so, you know, women, women were just as one group. I mean, the same was true of slaves and ex-slaves. You gain on the one hand, but you um, could also, also lose pretty heavily on the other. Mm. Do you think we can trust any male historian who describes a woman misbehaving or sort of joining in a dinner party with men, or was it always just pure slander? I don't think it was pure. I don't think we have to, we have to think it was pure slander. I mean, some some women were clearly very heavily traduced, and you know exactly what. I mean, a lot of men were very heavily traduced too. I mean, what, what really happens in terms of your reputation uh, this is particularly true of one of the main characters in 
in, in my book, The Emperor Vitellius, but, but, of, but of almost everyone. It's the, the, the guide to whether you get a good reputation or not, whether you're a man or a woman, um, was whether or not your successor depended on you for their legitimacy. So if, if you were you know, the Emperor Tiberius, who followed after Claudius, after, after Augustus, because he was um, Augustus' adopted son, Tiberius had no interest in trashing Augustus or, or trashing, trashing Augustus's wife or, or, or the women of Augustus's court because he, whatever he thought of them, and I should think a very dim view probably, but, but whatever he thought of them, um, his uh, power depended entirely on the fact that they had given it to him and he'd taken it from them. But if, however, you um, took over from someone who you wanted to... Um, who didn't want to be your legitimacy, of which Nero was, I mean, although Nero was adopted by Claudius, actually he didn't, he didn't despise Claudius and didn't want anybody to think that his being emperor, emperor had anything to do with Claudius, really. He got it from his, from his mother. So he, um, it was very easy to trash Nero, to trash Claudius, which um, uh, Nero, using Seneca as his uh, speechwriter, very effectively did. So the same thing applies to um, to women, you know, to, to women. I mean, Messalina did get a rough deal, but that was partly because um, her replacement had a very good interest in uh, um, in making sure that she uh, w w was seen as a, as a sort of profligate whore. And, um, and, the, and almost every male historian, I mean, one of the points of this book, really, is, is that we, however much we try not to, we tend to see the imperial period through the eyes of rich male aristocrats who felt that they were squeezed out by the new system. And some of them were great geniuses, of which Tastus was a great genius, but there were, other, there were many, many others. And they are basically were constantly harking back to the old ways where women knew their place, slaves knew their place, ex-slaves, um, ideally there weren't any. Um, they kind of... Um, they had an idea of, of, of the old way where Rome was great because people made great speeches in the in the courts and in the uh, and, and in the forum. And however much they tried to get a, and understand and to be sympathetic with the growth of uh, and, and all the things that Rome achieved under under the imperial um, system, that they they never really quite 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 got out of their system that there's, there's something going going wrong wrong here. So. Mm. So everybody got a pretty bad rap, but the people who got the worst rap were people who were succeeded by people who had an interest in doing that. And a lot of women were in that category. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I think sort of what you're saying sort of in particular about this sort of this moving away from this sense of, of what sort of makes you Roman, the further you get away almost from the Republic, the further you sort of get into the empire, it actually becomes harder and harder to sort of retain a, a reputation. I think I mean, so the Romans traditionally they sort of prided themselves upon their their rusticity and their true sort of Italian values. And so they saw it, they sort of frowned upon sort of opulence that you've been discussing because they associated it much as the Greeks had really with, with the East. Um, Emperor Augustus actually seems to have been fairly successful in retaining a reputation for frugality and his kind of traditional Italian values in many ways. Um, he famously he, he tore down uh, the rather opulent villa of his granddaughter Julia. Do you think it's fair that he and not others have, have still sort of is, is still associated with this simple living uh, and this maybe self-denial in, in some ways? Or do you think he's got away too lightly? Well, Augustus was a, a political genius. I mean, he, he couldn't do much. You know, he, would, he was very lucky in his military friends. He wouldn't have won power on his own. On his own. And he wouldn't have won power at all if, if he hadn't been, you know, plucked from nowhere by um, Julius Caesar, who was rather short of anyone to, um, to be his successor. But, but once he got there, and once he was, once he saw the the rabbit, as it were, his political instincts were extraordinary. And of course, what he was able to do was, and we have to watch this all the time in politics. I mean, you sometimes wonder whether you have to watch it now, where where he kept all the outward trappings of the Senate and the, being a consul and all the old systems, and um, while some cleverly sort of removing all their actual real power and sometimes you know you do have to look at the parliament you know you, you I, i'm not saying it's a direct relevant to what's going on now but you do it, it's not impossible to see you know institutions only appearing to have power when all the other with the powers actually disappeared somewhere else and i think anybody who's concerned with with um, politics has always has to keep you know has, has to key, keep an eye out for that but after, once augustus had gone uh, this particular trick became harder and harder to, to pull. And Tiberius, I think, to be fair, he was Augustus's successor. 
um, we're told very clearly that he tried very hard, you know, to give power back to senators to you know to recreate a bit of the old republic. But but the, unfortunately, the, the people, the, the senators, if you take the power away from people, eventually they lose the ability to use it, and they and they don't even notice when it's gone. And so Tiberius eventually. Um, perhaps his point being a bit more favourable to Tiberius than everybody would be, but he found that it actually wasn't possible to rule in the old way, even if he wanted to, because the um, the material, the, the people he wanted to, as it were, do the ruling, were too frightened to do it because they they knew that the most important thing, or gradually got to see that the most important thing, was doing what Tiberius would have done himself, and with everybody is second guessing the top man. Not putting any, and that's their main thing that they're doing. And then, in order to find out what the top man is thinking, they do all sorts of tricks of kind of flattery and cleverness, you know, in order in order to do that. You end up with a a system which uh, is 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 quite is is a lot frailer than the one that um, Augustus set up. But it's very hard, you know, being a it's not easy being a dictator. I mean, it often sort of seems to me that Augustus is just was this sort of incredibly clever um, sort of statesman. He was very good at, you know, in want of another word, sort of putting the wool over people's eyes. He was sort of saying, you know, trying to present um, a certain side of himself, trying to sort of engineer the idea that he was just continuing the idea of the Republic. He's not some scary new thing. And I think maybe Tiberius just wasn't such a smooth operator on that front. What do you think? No, I don't think he 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 wasn't, and he didn't want to be. And one of the problems with the uh, once you started having a dynasty, which there was, it was not at all obvious when Augustus in the later years that there was going to be a dynasty. There were plenty of people who thought there shouldn't be. They could go back to the old system, and, and many of the, of the figures in uh, of the, who might have become emperors were to, were thought to have. You know, Republican and old-fashioned ideas, you know, Drusus and other people were said to want to Tiberius's brother um, to, to return. It wasn't that there was no I no will or interest in returning. They weren't. Not everybody who became emperor was a natural, you know, um, crazy, libidinous, gluttonous, um, um, crazy, mad Caligula type figure. But it. But but it was actually quite hard not to be, and, and that was in some ways more interesting than I mean it's, it's an easy notion you know that, that all these you know give people this power and all power corrupts you know um, absolutely, but um, it was not actually very easy being an autocrat in any other way, and and you, I think the blame does if you're looking for the blame for this it's the blame can get the flatterers and the flattered. Uh, 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 are kind of equally responsible, and when, when eventually people, um, there was an extraordinary man called Epictetus, who hardly anybody ever writes about now and knows about, but in the Middle Ages was probably one of the most famous Roman philosophers that there was, and he had a very, um, was they were very very sound on this. I mean, he did see the imperial system. Everybody who had a part in the imperial system whether it's the slave, the ex-slave, the wife, the mistress, the, the wine taster, the poisoner, the, 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 everybody, they all had their place in the system. And, and, and the, the person who was being flattered and was a prey to flattery was as guilty as the flatterer uh, who was actually doing the flattery. They were all part of an interlocking system. 
And um, th this was very attractive to the medieval uh, mind. Uh, well, I mean, it was part of the creation of the medieval mind. And, uh, and so, yes, that was the very, um, that was, you know, the, I know, that was actually how it was, I, 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 I would argue. And of course, what, you, what it meant was that when you look at the legacy of Rome, which we tend to think of in terms of, you know, aqueducts, poetry, um, you know, fine writing, you know, um, and um, the sort of political organisation, you know, the Palatine itself, you know, which moved all, all over the world. What was bureaucracy, the birth of bureaucracy, was, was a very important part of Rome's legacy to it, to its successors. I mean, arguably, I would say as, import, as important as anything else. Once you had a Palatine running a, basically a government behind closed door, closed doors, you had a, um, a a series of power relationships. You know that, that soon became like a kind of civil service and a kind of executive branch, a system where. You know, no one could. You know, everyone had to play the office politics in order to get on in the office. Uh, all, all of which was kind of new, very influential, and is uh, although people don't like to think of it as a, as, you know, as one of the glories of Rome, <laughs> it was arguably as as, as as influential as anything that came out of that period. Well, let's talk a bit about um, the Palatine. Obviously, it's the the title of your book. Um, I mean, specifically the the Palatine Hill and how that changed. You evoke um, really fantastic sort of imagery of, of what, how that was actually visibly changing. So you, you might have these flatterers in Rome who are playing their part, but do you think there's a sense that people were in any way sort of irritated as the sort of grandeur of the Palatine Hill developed? I mean, you described as sort of the, the change from it being fairly simple to look at to sort of looking more and more like an imperial palace. Well, Augustus was again very, very clever about, about that. He was, I think he was a man of quite simple tastes himself, and he, he had a small house on the Palatine. And instead of building a great big house, a great big palace, he kind of connected all the other houses that had previously been there. So gradually the Palatine, um, the, the imperial control of the Palatine um, increased because the rich Republican aristocrats who used to live there, with their houses were sort of bought up. And so you, 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 in the first instance, you never got a great big palace. So that helped. And secondly, he built within his um, palace, the bit that everybody could see from the forum, an enormous public temple to Apollo, and um, which was a huge public space. And so he was he realized that it would not it was not a good idea that the people should feel too cut off from from what he was doing. Now, as time went on, um, the public, as, as things as these things happened, um, you know, the public spaces became more private and more uh, uh, sort of darker, and the, the more uh, the corridors became uh, dangerous places to, to <laughs> dangerous, dangerous and dark. And you, um, and and then fundamentally, of course, when you when you had the Great Fire of Rome, which uh, who knows what caused the Great Fire of Rome. But Nero's response to that was to say, "Ah, oh, not going to have this. Not going to have a go back to having that rabbit warren of rotten old houses that were um, <laughs> up there. Up there were, were poor old Augustus ago. We're going to have a nice new. We're going to have a really nice new palace. So he built this extraordinary creation, which he called the Golden House, 
with an enormous uh, golden statue of of of, uh, of himself. Um, it, it's more or less in the place where now the Colosseum is. If 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 if, if, you, if you go to Rome and look look out, you know, from the Forum towards the Colosseum, well, all that area there, it's called the Colosseum because uh, it was the site of the Colossus in this enormous statue, a colossal statue of the of the Emperor Nero. That, that, that's why. So when it was after Nero fell. Um, the Colosseum, the, the Golden House was knocked down, and they and they built they built the Colosseum. But um, uh, Nero certainly, certainly believed that the Palatine wasn't really quite up to scratch, and uh, and, and the, an emperor as important, as powerful, and as talented, and gorgeous, and beautiful as him deserved something uh, something better. I, I love the idea in um, on the ancient sources that Nero cause the fire simply because he wanted to get rid of this horrible rabbit warren of a city and rebuild it anew and it's <laughs> slightly far-fetched but it's an but, interesting but that's, theory again you see that's just part of, of the way in which they could the, the, the people who controlled the history i mean mm. if, if, if things had gone out slightly differently nero could have could have controlled you know could have controlled the history and the, and the story of why he built the golden house would have been completely uh, completely different but 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 the the losers don't get uh, um, don't get to write it, and so the people who wrote the history again of the Palatine buildings and the, you know the Golden House coming up and then immediately going down um, were the people who'd always really wanted it to go down in the first place. Quite. Now, a reminder to our viewers that you can ask a question at any point by clicking on the Ask Question button under the video screen and pressing Send. Um, so talking about sort of who writes uh, the history and how sort of history is shaped by those people. I mean, one of the families you've got at the centre of your narrative are the Vitelli family. Um, they're sort of upwardly mobile. Um, they sort of rise from relative obscurity, but then they enter the imperial circle. I wonder if you could very sort of briefly introduce us to who they were. Well, this was the beginning of the sort of bureaucrat class, which you you, you would recognise in Victorian England. And these the, the the earliest Vitellius that we know about is was a sort of fairly small scale um, assistant to the to Augustus. He was sort of did various tasks around the Palatine, um, and he had uh, sons, um, all of whom had to sort of finally work their way through this very very difficult um, terrain, you know, in order to survive. Uh, of which the, the most important was a man called uh, Lucius Vitellius, who actually ran Britain. So he ran Rome, ran the empire for for a bit when uh, uh, um, Claudius had, had gone off to, to pretend to to conquer, to conquer Britain. So he reached, as it were, like a sort of prime ministerial um, status, and he did that by, uh, as his critics um, were keen to notice, by an extraordinary mastery of the new art of sort of bureaucratic flat, flattery, which was an extremely difficult thing to master. He couldn't take it for granted. For, you know, you, if he was around, for instance, when Caligula was emperor for, for a very brief time, Caligula was sort of main, more or less what you read about and know about Caligula is at least half true. And he, uh, and he did have, he certainly put on a good show that he was the sun god, for instance, and that um, he was a, a totally different from ordinary mortals and uh, he, he was up there in the heavens. So, but you, you didn't know if you were Lucius Vitellius whether he really thought that or whether he was sort of pretending to think that or whether he was just tempting you. And so there was a 
famous occasion when he says to Lucius Vitellius, look at me, I'm the sun god, can you see me talking to the moon? Uh, now this was um, a tricky one for even a skillful guy as Lucius Vitellius, in a well-seasoned bureaucrat. Because if he said no, um, that might have been thought, you know, Caligula might have thought that he was denying that that um, any of the divinity of, uh, of Caligula that, that Caligula was telling people he had. However, if he said yes, his and Caligula was just being scheming and clever, he could Caligula could have drawn him on and said, "Okay, you can see me talking to the moon. Can you see Venus? Can you see um, you know? Can you see Juno? Can you see me talking to um, the, the the god of death? You know? The, the, I mean." Um, and so he was, didn't want to be drawn down that line either. So he came up very quickly with this line, no, 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 I can't see you talking to the moon because only gods can see other gods talking to each other. Now, that, when people heard that, ah, oh, this guy is, you know, is, on, is, on the, is, on the, is on the ball here. And he, he can handle this. And so if and, you know, somebody else would say, uh, uh, a very, very rich guy who... Uh, Caligula didn't like didn't like very much. Um, Caligula would would say, you know, have you have you had sex with your sister? Because Caligula was famous for having sex with his sister. And this guy didn't want to say no, because that was suggested he disapproved of Caligula having sex with his sister. And he didn't want to say yes, presumably because he hadn't, or at least. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so his his answer was not yet. And again, and again, these stories were kind of written down as examples of how you know you could you could manage um, a, a, you could manage the dictator and how he might be managing you. And so these bureaucratic skills were were the most one of the most you know famous exponent of them was Lucius Vitellius, the arch um, the, the super arch diplomat, bureaucrat, and flatterer. And then after after he then he had um, two sons. Um, of which one of them, um, Aulus Vitellius, um, was a sort of total playboy, sort of plaything. He was sort of, um, you know, to his critics, he became a, sort of like a brothel boy, really, and and, and a kind of uh, and a, and an infamous glutton. And so, and he peculiarly managed, by in the extraordinary um, days that followed the death of Nero, um, to become very briefly um, emperor himself. Um, I mean, it's an astonishing story of how he did it, which is the sort of second half of the of, of, of the book, where he kind of used such skills as he'd learnt secondhand from his father and from everybody else around him to get a job which he didn't particularly want, like so many people in bureau, you know bureaucracies do. They, they, they rise up to jobs that they can't do and don't completely want, and and, and then and then forever after, as soon as he'd failed, became the ultimate symbol. Of the glutton, you know, the, the person who who was only in it in the Palatine for for eating, uh, you know, six meals a day, bought from all over the world, um, and and every sort of every bad thing we were talking about earlier that you could possibly say about the you know the Roma banquet, you know, some of it true, some of it not, some political, some just greed, um, was all attached to this guy. So. Um, Vitellius the glutton, he wasn't a particularly important emperor, but the way in which he was described and categorised uh, as this 
particular villain, again, had an enormous subsequent influence on the, on the way in which um, the empire was, was perceived. The notion that basically the empire went down in a sea of, you know, scampi and uh, oysters and uh, kangaroo toes and, and uh, things and, and door, door mice in baskets. Um, all, all came from this <laughs> enormous glory and glee that people had in saying that the that the, the, the emperors were gluttons, and, and Vitellius was the ult, was the ultimate glutton, so much so that you know, although you know he, he was sometimes stays out of sight. You know, there were Renaissance paintings, an extraordinary painting by Veronese of the Last Supper, in, in which every fat villain, you know, has the face that the Romans thought had you know was 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 Vitellius. And there's a you know a bust a, a, a random fat guy um, who from I'm sure probably at least a hundred years after Vitellius had died that became known as the Grimani Vitellius because it was the fat guy's portrait that the Grimani family owned and so um, Vitellius entered history uh, particularly art history but I mean uh, uh, but also. In, in some ways, the history of politics, the history of reputation, the history of how you survive in in a dangerous landscape, even though he was actually you know only on the on, on the on, on the throne for a few months. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the full-length version right now, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.